Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream, enough to know they dreamed and are dead. And what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in a verse, McDonough and McBride and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn, are changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. That's John Waters, professor of Irish studies at New York University, reading from Easter 1916, a poem by W.B. Yeats about the Easter Rising, that is the 1916 rebellion of Irish nationalists and Republicans against British rule in Ireland. Today, partly in anticipation of Easter week and partly because the topic is so interesting, we hear from John about the Easter Rising, its political ramifications not just in Ireland, but in England and America, as well as its literary significance for Irish writers. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. On Easter Monday in 1916, a group of Irish nationalists led an armed insurrection in Ireland to strike a blow against British rule. The uprising lasted six days before the rebels were defeated and most of their leaders publicly executed. Our guest, John Waters, discusses this rebellion and its aftermath. He also explores the role of Irish literary and cultural leaders, such as W.B. Yeats, in developing a certain kind of Irish nationalism that fueled revolutionary zeal. John then discusses the role of Irish Americans in the Rising and in the politics of Irish nationalism. He also considers what we can learn about the process of politicization and radicalization from the writings and the memoirs of Irish revolutionaries of the period. In that way, John points to, and in many ways describes in our conversation, the promises and perils of revolution. All that and more is coming up in this episode of Common Ground. Professor Waters, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So I have a passage from uh, W.B. Yeats's Easter 1916, a poem about the rising, or rather a reflection on the rising. Could I have you read it? Sure. Um, Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Oh, when may it suffice? That is heaven's part, our part, to murmur name upon name, as a mother names her child when sleep at last has come on limbs that had run wild. What is it but nightfall? No, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream, enough to know they dreamed and are dead. And what if excess of love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in a verse. McDonough and McBride and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn, are changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. In brief, Professor, uh, what was the Easter Rising, this event whose aftermath Yeats ponders? The Easter Rising was, a, was the outcome of several years of cultural and political struggle in Ireland that manifested itself in a plan adopted by the Irish Revolutionary Brotherhood, a secret society formed to advance the causes of Irish nationalism but uh, joined in by a group called the Irish Citizen Army, which 
was developed by James Connolly and the Irish uh, General Transport Workers Union to basically participate in the militarization of Irish society. And that, that militarization of Irish society had begun in 1912. I realize I'm sliding back in time in order to get to 1916, but that's the way it is. Uh, it began in 1912 when the British Parliament passed the Third Home Rule Bill. And that, that was a bill that was going to give to Ireland a Home Rule Parliament and to restore a measure of self-government that had been abolished with the 1801 Act of Union when Irish representation was absorbed into Westminster. So the Third Home Rule Bill was the culmination of, of uh, over 20 years of, of struggle, and it required that the British Parliament fundamentally alter its procedures. The House of Lords had vetoed the previous Home Rule Bills, and so finally it, was, uh, it had been agreed that the House of Lords could no longer veto legislation. They could only delay its implementation for two years. So that meant that in the fall of 1912, with the reading of the th and passage of the Third Home Rule Bill, in two years, subsequently in uh, 1914, Ireland would receive a parliament. Now that uh, set off alarm bells among the Ulster Unionist community, and they formed the Ulster Volunteers, a quasi-military um, militia, to basically gird themselves to fight against Great Britain in order to stay a part of Great Britain mm. and not be represented in an Irish parliament. Why would they want to do that? They felt that their interests as Protestants would be absorbed into the majority Catholic population of the rest of the country. Of course, the country hasn't been divided yet, so, so territoriality and the geography of Protestant and Catholic interests is, is more complex than it became after partition. But nonetheless, they, um, they felt that the majority of uh, uh, Catholic middle class and Catholic peasant representation would not take their culture or their interests or their connection to the empire and to, to Britain at heart. Britain, of course, is a Protestant country. It has a king uh, in parliament who is the head of state. Um, so they felt that that state represented their interests and their religion and guaranteed their freedom of conscience in a way that that a, a home rule parliament might not, might not respect. Um, their, their arguments also had to do with the maintenance of a particular kind of power that they had uh, developed over time and that they felt would be eroded in, under home rule. So they imported 50,000 rifles from Germany in an act of kind of extraordinary defiance and, and uh, introduced, as my colleague Joe Lee says, they introduced the gun into Irish politics in 1912. That led to a countervailing movement in the Republic of Ireland to begin the formation of the Irish Volunteers, a, a nationalist uh, militia movement. Um, and then after the, the Dublin lockout, which was a, a, a confrontation between labor and management in the Dublin industrial uh, and public workers unions in, in 1913, a really bitter strike um, that lasted for months. Eventually the employers won and broke the strike, but that militarized Irish society and, and uh, that's where James Connolly decided that the that the uh, Irish citizen army should be formed. And, and so uh, with that particular strike, 
Would the laborers primarily have been middle class and lower class Catholics and their management primarily upper class Protestants? Uh, that's a that's a large generalization, okay. although not true in the in the case of like the largest and most visible member, Mike, Michael Martin Murphy, Catholic face of the the of management. Hmm. So the Dublin lockout ends badly for the workers, but it also polarized uh, further polarized Irish society. The point of the of talking about the different volunteer movements is that. There was a, a crisis deadline coming up in, in, in 1914, and that was all transformed by the outbreak of the First World War. It's important to remember that, that the world had seen nothing like the First World War, right? what it eventually became. So at the beginning of the war, everyone just assumed that this is going to be, this is going to go on for a little while, but it's not going to go on that long. Some of the people I write about in my own scholarship are Parg and Mary Column. They came on a vacation in the August of 1914, got out just at the beginning of the month before it became, just as war was breaking out. And they didn't go back again until 1922. Then they they had issued invitations for a New Year's Eve party before they left. And they had to cancel that New Year's Eve party and then do it again the next year. And uh, that gives us a sense of the idea that people, everyone assumed that the war would be over fairly quickly. Mm. And that's what John Redmond, who is the leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, assumed when he agreed to suspend the implementation of home rule and to support the British war effort and to encourage people to support Britain in in its wartime crisis. That was not a popular perspective from many of the more advanced nationalists, right? So... Over time, as the war dragged on and as the, the prospect of, of uh, and, and the sheer staggering number of deaths mounted, sympathy for Germany, hmm. anti-English prejudice, these led to, to some complicated maneuvering happening between Irish nationalists in New York, Irish nationalists in Ireland, and eventually led to the idea of an insurrection during wartime to strike a blow against Britain and to seize control of Ireland. But that's not how things turned out. The rising, the rising in fact, had, was called off. And so what we have is an incomplete rising, and it also was dependent upon the idea that guns were to be delivered from Germany, from a, from a ship called the Odd that was to land in the West Coast and to bring in 10,000 rifles that had been arranged by, by Roger Casement, who was on the ship. They got the signaling wrong. The ship cruised off the coast for 24 hours. Eventually, they were captured. The captain scuttled the ship. Casement was arrested. So the the rising that happened is not the rising that was imagined. Mm-hmm. But nonetheless, it was an extraordinary event of its own. It was a you know a week of of quite dramatic fighting that ended with British ships shelling central Dublin and destroying much of the commercial heart of the city. Uh, in order to put down the rebellion. How many people in Dublin actually contributed to the rising itself? Estimates vary between 1,400 who are out in uniform as, as participants. Some estimates are a little bit sort of higher than that. There are about 300 members of the citizen army, and about 1,100 of the, the Irish volunteers. Eventually, they're put down by, by an overwhelmingly superior numerical force of, of British soldiers who are brought in. 
So what's so interesting is that with all that's been written about the Rising, uh, the event in part seems almost as literary and cultural as it was political. Generally, what was the contribution of literary and cultural leaders such as W.B. Yeats to the development of a certain kind of Irish nationalism that would have fueled the Rising as well as the Irish War for Independence? Yeah, that's a great subject for a, for a semester or seminar, <laughs> isn't it, actually? And I, I, but but um, to, to kind of put that in a brief focus, it's absolutely extraordinary how many of the key figures in the Rising were writers and were literary figures who approached the Rising in many ways as an imaginative and a symbolic event. Although, when we say that, we have to remember they're, they're deadly earnest, deadly serious about the military aims of this. And they had been uh, working to develop a military perspective and a military capability in the average citizen, but also in themselves, and, and took themselves quite seriously as patriotic citizens who had a duty to their vision of the nation to adopt a martial uh, personality, a martial um, perspective. But the, if we think just about the volunteers, I mean, the commanding officer of the volunteers, Owen McNeil, was a professor of early Irish literature at the National University, which you know, University College Dublin. Uh, Thomas McDonough, the poet and literary critic and assistant professor at of Anglo of I'm sorry of, of English literature at University College Dublin, left his lecture on Shakespeare to go put on his uniform and go participate in the Rising. Um, James Connolly uh, had had been a socialist agitator and and uh, Marxist theorist who had written. Labor and Irish History, a remarkable work of his historical thinking, but also had written a play and, and had participated in thinking about the dramatic movement and its connection to the, to the political movement. I could go on. There's, there's you know, Joseph Mary Plunkett, for example, uh, who is one of the 16 who was executed. He had taken over from Parra Column the editorship of the Irish Review, where McNeil was on the board and McDonough was also one of the founders this network of writers and intellectuals who are close to the military leadership of and, and part of the military leadership of the Rising testifies, I think, to uh, first the role of literature in politicization in Irish culture. And, and that's something that goes back to um, really to the colonial wars in the 17th century, to the 18th century um, uh, Gaelic tradition of Jacobite literature that, that looks for the restitution of the Catholic monarchy as the end to, to Ireland's disabilities under the, uh, the Protestant ascendancy. So nationalism and politicization and, and literature go hand in hand in, in uh, the course of the 19th century. And the tradition of celebrating attempts toward independence in verse to a certain extent in drama, a certain extent in fiction. These are all um, part of the history of writing in 19th century Ireland, in early 20th century Ireland. So uh, it's also the case that you had very self-conscious actors in the, f the wake of the, the uh, collapse of the Parnell movement in 1891. Throughout the 1890s, the, the energy in Irish culture was in many ways, critics have seen to be filling a void 
left by mm. the collapse of organized parliamentary politics. And the culture sought to, to inculcate a perspective that would create independent citizens or create a national culture, which, was, which it was felt you know, was necessary as the badge of, um, of an independent nation, which Ireland was not. It had a tradition of nationhood, but it had been absorbed into Great Britain. So the idea that culture was the one thing that would guarantee culture and language, and, and that we should talk then about the language revival movement, because you know, in, in in the political and cultural theory of nationalism in the 19th century, language and culture are the birthright of a state, right? And so Ireland doesn't have a state. Is it a nation? Does it have a distinctive language and culture? That becomes the goal of cultural activists in in the Irish Revival, and it, I think we see it bearing fruit in the way that culture is the the, the uh, the glue of, of uh, the community of people in the rising, people who decided to, to fight. Can we talk a bit about uh, Yeats's perspective on, or Yeats's rather developing perspective on Irish nationalism? I, listeners will know uh, Yeats, especially his poem, The Second Coming, because it seems like that poem is always cited in moments of political turmoil, such as our own. I feel like I've heard, yeah, especially around yeah. election 2016, heard it cited quite often. So so Yeats was was certainly a leader of the Irish literary revival that you're talking about. Uh, he wrote Kathleen Houlihan, very much a nationalist play in which he cast Maud Gunn, his muse, in the uh, titular role. But his attitude, correct me if I'm wrong here, Professor, his attitude toward the project of political nationalism changed over time, uh, especially after the rising. Could you could you talk about that? I think it's, it's uh, I like the way you frame that, Joseph, cause it, because one of the key insights that we we have to keep in mind about Yeats and the extraordinary period in which he lived from 1867 to 1939 is there are multiple Yeatses. This is someone whose, whose capacity and genius really is his adaptability and his willingness to change but, but also to, to continually press forward with an ambition that is yoked to a desire that is connected to the real, that is not abstracted. This is someone who wanted to make the imaginative labors of the poet effective in, uh, in the world. Mm -hmm. right? So we don't often see that in the early Yeats that's more closely connected with 19th century romantic uh, idealist tendencies in in British poetry, um, but we see it in in his agitation for an Irish literature, in his work of collecting folklore, uh, of adapting materials from Irish folk culture for um, uh, for a literary audience. But that that is is part of the broader initiative that's underway in revivalist culture. That's not. That, that Yeats seeks to direct, but that, that has many different hands and many different voices kind of participating in it. But with what's distinctive about Yeats is that he, he adopts as well a very aggressive organizational role in first editing volumes right, of, of Irish fiction, Irish poetry, uh, Irish folklore, Irish folk tales, 
but also of contemporaries, bringing contemporary voices and contemporary poets together. That organizational effort, over time, brings Yeats into contact with a broad uh, number and a broad range of writers whose political commitments often found expression in verse uh, forms in particular that while they were effective in being part of a, pol a political literary tradition uh, and a nationalist literary tradition, were also committed to a, a, an aesthetic that over time Yeats developed a deep antipathy for. And so, so what we see, uh, Yeats, one of the areas in which he enjoys have some degree of agreement is in the idea that, that politics can mar literature if it becomes detrimental to the form and the content, the expressive content of the work of art. So bad political poetry rubbed both of them the wrong way mm. in that sense. And Yeats's, Yeats's distaste for, for certain kinds of, um, of hackneyed political verse uh, grows over time, but it, but it particularly grows with his alienation from the generation that assumes the leadership of Irish nationalism in the period uh, just toward the end of the first decade of the of the 20th century. What's a bad political poem to Yeats? Is it, is it one that's sort of um, uh, obviously propagandistic? Yeah, precisely. Prop propagandistic, but also not refreshed in its language. Um, or that has a kind of uh, sentimentality that repetitive or hackneyed. Um, like Yeats is not... He's mostly concerned that that um, a tr that literature be true to itself, and that it the the idea of a literary work of art serving a purpose is in many ways runs against the um, the vision that he has for his own poetry, and and that changes over time. That's what I say by, by there being several different Yeatses. So it doesn't mean that he's not going to write public poetry or politically engaged poetry, it means that the, the poetry that he seeks to write will have integrity as a poem as opposed to integrity as a political statement. I mean, and so that, that's, I guess what I'm wondering is, was Yeats's commitment to a certain cultural nationalism as opposed to a certain political nationalism, and can those two things be separated meaningfully? Um, I think I, I think the, that circumstances created the need, the need to separate that based on the fact that Yeats did not um, agree with or feel comfortable with the the emergent leadership of Irish nationalism in in the period in question, and particularly the over time uh, Yeats becomes attracted to notions of tradition, notions of cultural and um, intellectual achievement that he, he identifies with the Protestant ascendancy, the Anglo-Irish ascendancy, at the same time that he sees a, a new political and cultural uh, bourgeoisie uh, 
directing affairs in Ireland, and and there's a there's a sense in which the the role of the church and the role of Catholic hierarchy in influencing politicians is distasteful to Yates. Um, we shouldn't forget that the 1907 riots around and controversies around the Playboy of the Western World were were deeply um, embittering for Yates. That he felt that that this was um, uh, Philistinism attacking genius rather than what the participants in those protests felt, which was an honorable defense of, of, of national uh, pride right? um, uh, in the face of uh, an insult offered by a Trinity College Protestant. So that, that it came to a head then, and we can see Yeats increasingly articulating a, a haughty uh, perspective that that is distrustful of the, the more you know the more bourgeois elements of Catholic Dublin and and, um, uh, and that there's an urban Catholic culture that is I think especially it solidifies is especially distasteful yet it just solidifizes in the poem September 1913 right she begins you know what need you being come to sense but fumble in a greasy till and half add the half pence to the pence and share prayer to shivering prayer until you know, it's 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 uh, you've dried the marrow from the bone it's it's a really um, dismissive uh, view of the present uh, romantic Ireland is dead and gone it's with O'Leary in the grave it's you know that uh, is is a, a point at which Yeats's turn toward aristocratic manners as a feature of of what is valuable in culture mm. um, it becomes very marked and and so there's that's connected to a notion of heroism and a notion of tragedy of tragic gesture of uh, memorable deed. And we see that in his writings about, about 1916 and his writings about the Civil War and the, the notion of the, the transformative deed, the intervention in time that makes, uh, that makes history move and, and uh, realizes the, the imagined into the actual in a way. So if we could just uh, go back to the rising and, and learn a bit about its fallout. Uh, you, you said before that the bulk of Irish opinion was against the rising in the beginning, or rather the rising was called off in most places. So even if people weren't unionists and were against the British, they still considered in some sense the rising ill-advised. However, it's often said that public opinion changed when the British executed a number of the leaders of the rising, including the McDonough, McBride, Connolly, and Purse, who Yeats mentions in his poem. Do you think that's that's right, that public opinion shifted because of the execution? Do you think there were also broader causes? I, that's a great question. I think we're still learning about that. And that's a, that's a remarkable fact that, that uh, 100 years on, you know, scholarship is still groping towards an understanding of this notion of public opinion. What was it? And and how do we understand it? And, and literature is very useful. Memoir is very useful in trying to think that through. But but so too is the is just the hard work of understanding what people knew, and where, as events unfolded in uh, in in the period during and after the rising. Was the rising really unpopular? You know, there there's there's small but 
but uh, important evidence to say yes, it was it was certainly very unpopular among the, uh, uh, particularly the class of people who were confident to express their feelings about mm. something mm. that was an in, it was a tremendous inconvenience, uh, incredibly destructive, potentially really foolhardy, and it certainly looked foolhardy in retrospect, in, in the immediate retrospect, because there were, there were uh, many, many, many tens of thousands of volunteers who might have turned out around the country, but who were told to stand down by, by Owen McNeil and, and by the, the leadership. McNeil had been kidnapped, basically, and imprisoned by his colleagues and by his friends during the rising so that it could, so that it could happen, mm. right? Uh, th there was a real divide of those who were saying, look, if we're not going to do it now, we're never going to do it. And those who said, look, if we do it now, it's just, we're just going to lose. And then the, the argument became, look, lose or not, it's only by losing that we're ever going to win. And, and that response of, of people who were in Dublin at the time and who, who were watching chaos envelop themselves. Most of the people who are killed are bystanders who went out to watch Many, you know, many people who are getting, getting shot at because they don't have experience with urban warfare and think there's people in uniforms that are going to be shooting at each other. They're not going to shoot at me, you know. But but that's one of the things that happens, particularly with shelling. When when the gunboats came up the Liffey and started bombing uh, uh, the Keys and and O'Connell Street and uh, eventually destroying the headquarters of the, the rebels in the GPO, there was a level of indiscriminate warfare that was introducing Western Europe to what had been going on in, the, in, in, uh, in France and Belgium. But here it's happening in a peacetime, you know, a peaceful capital that's not uh, seemingly part of the conflict itself. And yet the people who were doing, the, who were leading the rising were saying, you know, this is part of the conflict and we're striking a blow for Irish freedom precisely at this moment. Now, many people felt that it was traitorous to the hundreds of thousands of Irishmen who were fighting on the Western Front. Like at the Battle of the Somme. Exactly. Right there, 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 there are immense sacrifices being made on behalf of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland at this moment. So, so there's certainly public opinion that would be against that. However, we have to think through carefully the question of what did people know about the rising? And this is wartime. There's a very effective censorship regime that's been in place. When do people hear about what happened and how it happened and why it happened the way that it did? And how do we understand the, both the spread of information and then the context that people have, the cultural context, the contemporary political context, but, but also the grammar of experience, wherein... One thing we, we should say about the executions is the behavior of the leaders of the rising before their execution. And this is always the case, really. Political execution is, generates very complex dynamics whereby the behavior of a person at the end of life is magnified. We saw that in, in English history, this is really a question of the, of the death of Charles II being, being guillotined, sorry, uh, Charles I being guillotined. Uh, being beheaded, his his composure gave to the royalists a remarkable degree of of energy, and and gave to the 
the Republicans a challenge of the dignity of the person whom they'd executed. That notion of, of, of dignified death and also of the, of the gallows comportment, it's really powerfully activated by, by Joseph Mary Plunkett, who marries his, his bride you know, the night before he's executed in his prison cell. It's by Thomas McDonough, this remarkably charming, literate, well-loved man. By James Connolly, who can't stand and has to be propped up to be shot. Um, uh, the, the, the conduct of, of the executed men it was, in, it was in keeping with their desire to transform the vision of Irish masculine and Irish martial traditions. But it's also something that, that it, if it changes public opinion, it changes public opinion because it was able to be changed. It was ready to be changed. So that the initial inconvenience and the initial foolhardiness of discomfort or, you know, or, or violence or, or loss of property, all of the things that make the initial reaction to the rising one of anger, of frustration, those have to be weighed in the balance against the broader question, how did Irish people feel about their, their, their participation in the Union, the First World War, the British leadership, the British military, the British military personality. There's a deeply embedded historical consciousness of Irish grievance that is available to be activated around events of the kind that took place both during and after the Rising. And so, uh, the, for example, the idea of the prisoners being marched from their capture in Henry Street out to the barracks on the west, uh, northwest side of the city, being jeered and having things thrown on them. Well, one question is, what streets were they walking through? And, and who lived in those streets? And, and who was really upset about all the sniping that was happening on Northumberland Road and on, on the nicer parts of town? All of that, we're just coming now, I think, in the, in the wake of the centenary scholarship, this massive burst of of new research, new thinking. We're just coming to understand how much the geography of the city, the, the class geography of the city, relates to that image of an unpopular rising. You, you, you describe the sort of explosion of, of what was a deep well of resentment and anger over British imperialism. At, uh, during the rising, and I imagine it was, you know, uh, the sort of fuel of that continued to burn through the Irish War of Independence. Roy Foster, in his recent book, uh, Vivid Faces, which is about the networks of intellectuals and activists who contributed to the rising, uh, who we've been talking about, he describes how many of the Irish who served the revolution later looked back on it with a certain regret, particularly for its excesses. That, that sentiment seems perhaps to resonate with Yeats's phrase, a terrible beauty is born. What, what terrible beauty might the Rising have given birth to? Uh, that depends so much on who's answering and when and where. So I think Yeats's much revised and much worked over phrasing in, in Easter 1916 has, has the, the power and the character of, 
a self-confirming insight, an insight that in the form in which it was expressed captured something that had been uh, potential but is then made formal and actual. I mean, if you think about the last lines of the poem, right? I write it out in a verse, McDonough and McBride and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn, are changed, changed utterly, a terrible beauty is born. I mean, that, there's a remarkable balance of verb tenses in those lines between what's happened, what's happening, and what's to come. And the power of Yeats's poetry, and I think the power of the vision of the rising that, the, that this poem both expresses, but also captures, because it's not only Yeats that, that has this feeling that what happened here is, is going to be determinative, is going to be transformative. Right? But it's also that, that, that his ability to capture it and express that is a, a self-confirming logic. It's a, it's a confirmatory mode by which the clarity of vision fixes the unfixity of experience into prophecy, into the, the projection toward a, a, a future where a terrible beauty is born, right? right? You know, um, where they are changed, changed utterly. Now, when we when we think about the the War of Independence, and then its relationship to the Civil War, there's there's a degree of complexity and of unforeseen outcomes that I think it's it's not necessarily I, I would not necessarily regard it as a responsible way to think only of disillusion as a verdict as opposed to, I think, disillusion as a symptom or disillusion as, a, as an inevitability. I don't know how many 20th century revolutions have not been accompanied at some point by disillusionment. And, and so thinking through, what, are, what does a revolution look like that doesn't have disillusionment? There, I don't think there has been one. The American Revolution, right, which is often represented as this pristine, wonderful achievement, uh, you know, was, was greeted by incredibly tense argument and discursive fighting and then armed resistance and and you know rebellion our, our disillusionment continues yeah I think so today. no exactly so so in the case of ireland the the issues that that played out after the rising that are going to be the subject of of a lot more complex uh centenary contemplation <laughs> to coin a phrase that that's we're going to, to, to witness, I think, a very interesting historiographic, but also broader cultural conversation about the legacies of, of that history. And I'm actually, I'm really encouraged and hopeful, based on the, the experience people had with the, the centenary and, and the, the cultural conversation that the centenary enabled people to have, I'm encouraged that I think a lot of the, the negative consequences of the Civil War and of the form that the state took at its founding can be addressed in a much more clear way. And, and that, that the party politics that defined the two-party system in Ireland, maybe, you know, maybe the, the disillusion with the present can, can force a conversation about the structures put in place by that, that sequence of events between 
between really the, the end of the First World War and then the creation of the Free State, because one of the things when you look in the archives, and I, I was down in the National Archives in D.C., to track how the American security apparatus, the FBI and the Bureau of um, Military Intelligence, how they looked at Irish nationalists in the period during, from the rising through the First World War, and then after the First World War when, when the Versailles Peace Conference and the, and the resolution to the conflict was, was or was not going to address the matter of Ireland, right, which had, had risen in violence, and then right after the end of the war had, had voted for this dramatic change that in, in governance but also in relation to Britain. Right, so the, the Sinn Féin landslide in the in the uh, the November 1918 elections is, is a was a stunning change in direction and expression of popular political will that was very keenly felt in Washington. It was very keenly felt in New York as a as a sort of change. But nobody really knew how this was going to work out, and we see in the in the spy reports in uh, the National Archives. The wide variety of imagined possibilities, from federation, from a home, a new home rule parliament, to a republic, right, an independent, freestanding republic, that people were contemplating. But also, you know, this is this is when, in a, when socialism, communism, in forms of international solidarity, they're being hotly debated and hotly pursued, and then they're spilling over into into radical you know, political violence in the United States. 1919, 1920, this is an incredibly volatile time when the fate of Ireland is being addressed and when, frankly, you know, the Woodrow Wilson and the American delegation heard from, from so many key figures in Irish America and in Ireland to address this problem, and, and Wilson did not. Wilson said did not want to force Britain into a confrontation over Ireland and allowed it you know, the fate of small nations, which was the, the grand um, moral cause of the, the war right, uh, against Germany, was absolutely belied by the way that Ireland was treated and was ignored. And Britain was allowed to maintain this, you know, this issue of this is our sphere of influence, our backyard, you can't tell us what to do. And that proved unacceptable to, to Irish nationalists, and Irish nationalists viewed themselves as much more resolute fighters than they had been. And, and that has to do with this notion of a terrible beauty is born that you began with. That when, when Michael Collins and his colleagues decide to pursue a, a really dramatically violent attack on the administrative state in Britain with Bloody Sunday and the assassinations of Bloody Sunday, that's a changed, that's a changed movement by that point, and I think I think that's where we see this notion of something having been transformed when when uh, violence could be embraced toward political ends, and it 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 spreads, it infects the the culture of the society in ways that I don't think anybody foresaw the idea that the Republican movement would fracture the way that it did around the treaty. But again, that, that's actually something I'm looking forward to, the, to the scholarship and the conversations of the next couple of years is to, to, 
clarify the lens with which we can view what happened. We know a lot, and we can always know more, but I also think that the, the, the urgency of the present moment is going to condition the way we reframe this crisis period in the, in the, in the birth of modern Ireland. So you mentioned the uh, treaty. I, I've heard you talk about Ernie O'Malley, one of the commanders of the anti-treaty sect of the IRA. He, f- for for a variety of reasons, perhaps you could you could you could describe them. Uh, he was exiled and eventually ended up in in the U.S. in Greenwich Village. Is that right? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. Ernie O'Malley is a really uh, incredibly interesting figure, and I would encourage anybody with an interest in this period in Irish history to read his his memoir, which is in two volumes, the On Another Man's Wound, which is about the War of Independence, and then The Singing Flame, which takes his his experiences through the, uh, the Civil War. Yeah, O'Malley is just an extraordinary writer and an extraordinary uh, figure because he, he adopted and he, he um, transformed himself through militarism, through reading military manuals, military planning and strategic literature, and was trusted by Collins to go into areas of the, of the uh, rural hinterlands of Ireland to organize people into cells and into companies that would fight, fight the British and, and, uh, and pursue strategic aims around the country. And so O'Malley got to know the back of Ireland. He's on the run. He's, he's a wanted man throughout this year. And he's bicycling and hiking and living outside and staying in safe houses throughout the country. And it's an amazing, it's an amazing story. I, I, I think if you, um, if you're a fan of, of Humphrey Bogart films or, or f- of film noir, right, there's the great, my favorite of them all is The Big Sleep. And The Big Sleep begins uh, where Humphrey Bogart goes and visits General Sternwood, who's looking for his lost daughter and his missing daughter, but, but particularly for a missing man named Sean Regan, who had been a, an IRA commander. And it's, and it's loosely based on Ernie O'Malley. And O'Malley wound up in California in, in the 30s and met, he seemed to have been a real interesting, charismatic person, and he met a whole range of figures in, um, in Hollywood who, who were in the presence of a real revolutionary, someone who physically, every day, lived with, with the pain, not that he dramatized it or talked about it much, but, but it was someone who was tortured, and mm-hmm. someone who was, whose memoir, in fact, had been censored around the passages where he described the, the torture that he experienced in, in Dublin Castle. So what, what's amazing and interesting about O'Malley, and which comes out in a volume published by uh, Irish Academic Press and edited by Cormac O'Malley this year, is called Modern Ireland and Revolution, is how O'Malley is a conduit between the political experience of Irish nationalist independence and American modernism. American modernism in poetry, American modernism, especially in the visual arts, American modernism in f- cinema and film. It, O'Malley's a really wide-ranging intellect who connected with, with, with just a really stunning array of, of important 20th century intellectuals here in New York, but then 
then also in, in Taos in New Mexico and as I say in, in Southern California. So we've been talking generally about the cultural factors that contributed to the rising. Uh, we've also discussed the role that Irish Americans played in the rising. I want to consider what you just described, which is the process of politicization, because in, in many ways I think we're, we're, we Americans are in fact in a moment of politicization or at least intense polarization. Uh, so you, you mentioned Ernie O'Malley's memoir on another man's wound. It's interesting, especially at the beginning, we've talked about this, it, it, it describes basically how as a boy, when the rising happened, uh, O'Malley didn't really know whether he wanted to side with the Unionists at Trinity College or if he um, wanted to side with the Nationalists rebels and the way he describes his ultimate arrival at uh, decision uh, is 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 very interesting interesting and perhaps um, in a sense counterintuitive or at least it runs against the grain of what we commonly think are the yeah. contributing factors to someone becoming a revolutionary yeah so it's almost contingent he runs into these friends who are going to defend trinity college against the rebels and says come on we'll give you a rifle and you know he's a he's a teenager he thinks about it and contemplates it. Then he meets another friend from the neighborhood who tells that to, and that friend says, what are you kidding? You're gonna fight against your own people? You're gonna defend Trinity? What, what do you have with Trinity? And, and so it, it's presented brilliantly because O'Malley did not have a political consciousness. He is an upper middle class bourgeois Catholic in school with a brother in the British Army and with two comfortable parents who are disinclined to support revolution. So his so his 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 representation of this pivotal decision at that moment seems to put it against chance, but if we actually think about it, I think just just a little bit further, the the second figure that he runs into, the friend who who whom he winds up going out at night and taking pot shots at, at British, you know, um, encampments and, and, and placements and stuff. That friend is able to shame him. And he's able to shame him in a way that the Trinity friends wouldn't be able to shame him. And that's a, in other words, they, they're not able to say to, to Ernie O'Malley, we've got to defend the empire and we've got to defend Trinity College and we've got to, against these, these rabble rousers. Whereas the, the other the person who he aligns with is able to say, this is, this is, these are our own people. This is the Irish destiny, in a way, to, to assert our independence. And what O'Malley finds, actually, is that the reservoir within himself of folklore, of tales, particularly tales that he'd been told by his nurse or his nanny, these are the, the, the substrate of a romantic nationalist commitment. And I find those more compellingly act, uh, able to be activated than the idea of, you know, getting up on the walls of Trinity College and defending Trinity College, which has walls, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, to defend itself and has, and has clear, you know, clear interests to... Um, in its, in its notoriously close connection to the establishment. So uh, O'Malley was just at that age where he, he's not yet fully installed in a position of social commitment and social responsibility. And then it, it turns out that just this, this that there's a movement present for him. There's the language movement and there's the volunteers. 
And when he gets into them, he he's just at that age where he finds himself, where he finds a world outside of the family uh, that he's able to to step into, and that world is 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 gathering energy and gathering people, and the and as people get into it, it gathers more energy. And and the, the passages that I most admire in the memoir are the passages about the collective consciousness not expressed as a collective consciousness but as a, a sense of this notion of the people that the people is a real thing and that the, the the people feel themselves to be a real thing and in feeling themselves to be uh, an entity a force uh, an indefinable consciousness right a collective consciousness the state is not that thing. The state is separate. The state is coercively opposed to that coming to consciousness, that, that coming into being. So, so uh, again, O'Malley's genius is to, to gather his own experience into an act of very careful witness that tells that larger, harder-to-tell story and does it without being didactic about what that story is. It's inductive. It gives you this, this experience. And from that experience, you think, that I, I get a flavor now of why somebody could risk their lives because what O'Malley gives us is the sense of the feeling of worth that comes about through collective endeavor and collective experience. Now, the, you know, the... the the critical perspective on that notion of of nationalist uh, commitment to violence and commitment to the willingness to engage in violence is the idea that it's um, that it's brainwashing or that it's false consciousness. That um, <clears throat> it's only false consciousness if you don't want it to appear. But when it appears, when it's when it's fostered in there, it is. Um, uh, it is deeply connected to a past, and O'Malley found that. He found that to be true. He found that, that to, to find around the country the confirmation that this is what people wanted. They wanted the pursuit of independence one way or another. And, and so he, he, he discovered himself over the course of his involvement. And, he, and the self that he discovered is a, a transformed, changed, utterly self. So I want to I want to get this question in before I I have a few questions of biography, but one you know, it's a it's a broad question, um, but I have been wondering what what is the in your view what is the legacy of the developments of the IRA to our understanding of the process of politicization which you've been addressing, but also to the development of modern terrorism. You know, it goes back before the period we're talking about, really to all the way back to 1798 and to the United Irish Movement, I think, and the idea that a, a rational, non-sectarian movement for Irish nationalism was banned and was driven underground and was forced to become a revolutionary organization that was then, you know, militarily defeated, but defeated in such a way that, that it, it the Union sowed the, so, the seeds of its own destruction by not being uh, the creation of an inclusive civil society. So the union was always marred by its initial structure, the denial of Catholic rights and Catholic emancipation for the first 30 years of the union, 28 years of the union. 
I think had enormous consequences for for oxygenating nationalism and 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 creating desire to repeal to repeal the union and to to revisit the united irish ideal the fenians the young ireland movement in 1848 the fenians in 1867 uh, the international fenian dynamite campaigns and and uh, plans that emerge into the land league in in the early 1880s these are generational pulses of of a of a new form of an old problem and partition as the solution to the, the crisis of the British state in 1922 had all of the negative consequences that partition has had globally. Uh, a refusal to construct a, a inclusive democratic or, or Republican form of government that answers the needs of people and that instead goes toward the idea that uh, people can't be trusted to find ways of living together. We have abundant historical evidence that people can be trusted to find ways of living together if the circumstances for it are right. Now, there's, there's hindsight questions about, you know, how this should have come to be. I think my own view echoes, I think, the, the powerful analysis of Seamus Dean about why the North of Ireland erupted into political violence and, and caused this over 30-year concussion. And Dean viewed, viewed it not as the recalcitrance and resurgence of Irishness, but of the, of the failure of Britishness. For the Irish Catholics in the North, they felt doubly abandoned, excluded from the Republic, which many of them would still call their own government, but never brought fully into the civil society of, of Britishness. And the sectarian divide in political power and in economic and social opportunity in Northern Ireland utterly delegitimated in the eyes of, of the majority of Catholic population the, the structures that had been put in place through partition. So that's an intractably solid problem while that border is there. This is why Brexit is, is so utterly irresponsible and why the vote was so utterly irresponsible. And it's because English thinking was about England and, and about maintaining the conservatives in power. The place where this is really frightening is in the north, and, and the reimposition of a border is, a, is an absolutely disastrous idea. And it's not what the people of Northern Ireland want, it's not what the people of the Republic of Ireland want, and it's, it, it's, un, it's unchanged. Now, I happen, to, I happen to be optimistic in the sense that I think the, the lessons of, of the war in, in Ireland have, have been learned by the vast majority. And, and the fringe elements, I, I don't think, are going to go back to controlling political events. Let, let's, let's hope and, and, and live in hope uh, and, and in determination to not sort of support that. But if we're, you know, my own entry into politics was, was attending protests at the British Embassy during the hunger strikes in 1981. I, you know, I was in high school at the time, living in Brooklyn. And my brother listened to WBAI uh, radio. 
and turned me on to sort of what was going on. I was delivering the Daily News and, and the cover every news, you know, the cover stories of what was going on in Ireland. And I'd spent time in Ireland as a, as a young child, mm. and my grandmothers were, were around us who were both raised in Ireland and, and adults in Ireland before they left. And so I, I was aware of things, but, but it was the hunger strikes that really taught me to pay attention and to think about what was going on. Um, and so, yeah, my awareness of, of, of the North as a, uh, a compelling object of thought and of continuing you know, historical provocation to, to thought has been there since I was a teenager, really. So you grew up then in Brooklyn in an Irish-American family? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm the seventh of eight kids from a big, you know, Irish Catholic family. Both my parents were first generation to go to college in their families. Well, my, my grandfather and my mom's dad was trained as a pharmacist in St. Michael's College in Listowel in, um, in Kerry. But uh, my dad's father was a coal miner in, in the Arigna mines in Saslago, uh, Northwest Common. And so uh, all four of my grandparents came over in the 20s. And so my parents, you know, raised us in middle-class Catholic Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. uh, my mom was a prophet at Brooklyn College. And my dad taught at a number of different colleges and universities and over his career. So uh, so growing up Irish in, in Brooklyn, did that give you a deep sense of Irish culture, Irish literature? Deep? deep no. <laughs> no. Cursory, okay. No, 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 it wouldn't. I grew up hearing, you know, the, the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem. But actually in, in high school I had, you know, a bunch of good friends who liked Irish music. And my brother played the bagpipes and was, I grew up around Irish music as part of the, the house and the sort of cultural environment. And there were amazing Irish musicians in the neighborhood teaching music and, and, and refreshing things. And, and, you know, we had, my, my parents had a lot of family in Ireland who, who we knew were there. So I wouldn't say Irish literature was something that it was on my radar as a as a kid although my my dad was a great reader and would you know so there was a library of books about Ireland in the house and about Irish political history and political figures um, but it was it, it was in college that I you know I first studied Joyce and 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 got interested in Really, actually, through Seamus Heaney, I, I did a course with Peter Sachs at Johns Hopkins on contemporary British and American poetry, which actually Heaney was in, which was interesting because it was right after the controversy about Heaney's passport, about Heaney being included in, in Penguin Book of British Verse and Heaney writing his open letter to, uh, to the editors saying, you know, I don't want to be part of the British uh, British is not the right term for me. I don't see myself as British. What was the right term? His passport's green, as he says. Okay. <laughs> uh, he's, he's, um, he's Irish, but with out-renouncing claims on the English language or the English lyric, right? So that's the great... Heaney's in between us, and, and Heaney in that generation, Heaney, Dean, Brian Friel, this, this amazing resurgence of intellectuals that come about in Northern Ireland over the last 50 years, they're all remarkable witnesses and and products of an in-between state of a tense collision of allegiances and of circumstances mm -hmm. and the, the intellectual clarity with which they confronted that and worked that through I think is one is one of the great gifts of Irish culture to you know modern European and Anglo-Atlantic you know life really I mean, these are this is a small place with a with a remarkable intellectual impact f 
on literature, liter- literary art, certainly, but but also I think in terms of critical thinking too. I think you know we shouldn't we have to think that when when post-structuralist critical theory is is advancing in Western Europe, Ireland is in continuous political crisis and violent crisis. And so, you know, the, 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 there's a check on the abstraction of theory when you have theorists and people encountering theory. Now, now there's a deep antipathy to theory in Irish literary culture. And, and Dean is, a, is the, the sing, signal beacon of, of intellectual thought in Ireland be, because he turns his attention to the history of ideas and the history of thinking as a way to understand the present. That's how I see his, his immense influence. But, he's, but he's, he was always, it seems to me, a provocation to the idea that literature is, can be removed from cultural and political life. That's interesting it, because, I mean, theory is held in a sense as like, it, by its nature, political, even though it seems in a sense removed from, the, uh, from day-to-day life and from the actual work of politics. I mean, is, would that be the position of Irish writers at the time? I, I think the Irish literary establishment was deeply, and, and, and I'm talking about the period where I know it, which is really the 80s, was very strongly influenced by a new critical conception of the independence, the necessary independence of art from life, of art from politics, of, of art from uh, partisanship. And so, so that has to do with the fact that, you know, the, the dominant culture of literature departments in Ireland was conservative. It, it, it was, you know, that, that's a generational change. You know, by, by the mid-90s, that's no longer the case any longer. But I think certainly the suspicion of the politicization of literature that's everywhere in, in criticism about Irish poetry in particular in the 80s and early 90s, uh, and that's maintained you know, in the work of Edna Longley in a very sophisticated but ultimately a very uh, kind of rearguard action against the, what would some would see as the corruption of literature through politics. So there are debates about, you know, about how you situate individual authors on a dynamic range of their political commitments. Not that in, I don't think those are that interesting necessarily, but I think the um, partially because I, I'm of a generation that, and of a from a place where I could stand outside of that, and so I could be both engaged with with the, the warring factions in the revisionism debates or in or in the debates about Heaney and, and politics, but also you know standing aside from the, from that kind of thing. So you did your undergrad at Johns Hopkins. What happened after that? I heard about a, I learned about through sheer accident the existence of a new, brand new MPhil in Anglo-Irish literature at Trinity. And I had a kind of tentative job offer to work in advertising. And uh, I'd been doing that in the summers in New York. And I just, I saw how inexpensive it was to go to school. And I had a, I had a friend at Johns Hopkins, a physicist who had, who had gone to Trinity I uh, was doing his PhD at Hopkins and was dating a girl I knew and a lovely, super cool guy. And he said, one of my best friends is a house in, in a beautiful part of town and I'll, I can see if he's got you know, a place for you to live there. So I wound up going to Trinity in 1987 and finishing in, in uh, 1986 and then finishing in at right, the beginning of 1988, my, uh, my MPhil, where I wrote on Paul Muldoon's poetry, which was very new then. He, he's, you know, he was a young poet who uh, 
was writing really difficult, abstract, but really provocatively cool stuff. And I came back here, New York, for another year, working on Wall Street in a banking lobbying group and getting my job, my PhD applications. Yeah. So what, I went to Duke. What was it? PhD. What was it like? I mean, going from living in Dublin and being at Trinity and being part of that sort of scene to coming back to New York and working on Wall Street for a year. I I missed. I missed Ireland. I missed my friends there. But Ireland was a different country then from from what it became. So uh, I was I was abjectly poor <laughs> when I was living in Dublin. I, it's it's fine to laugh at it now, but I can remember, you know, waiting for for a, my sister to send me twenty five bucks in the mail that she barely had, and then being so frustrated because there was a postal strike and uh, just living on potatoes and spaghetti. But but also. You know, it was, a, it was, the culture was, was fantastic. People were remarkably interesting and great to get to know. But the, the political situation was disastrous. I, I, was, I spent some time hanging out with a woman who was a nurse in the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast. And she, I went up to Belfast a few times and going through the border. And it was when the INLA were killing each other and... And, you know, the, the the bomb scare and the bombs. And, you know, I, I was never immediately confronted with things, although I f would find myself in Belfast caught up in a sweep of, you know, soldiers running down a block searching for something, and you'd have to you know, get braced for it and see machine guns for the first times and things like that. But, um, you know, as as in most kinds of social violence, it's, it's really... Um, unless you're in, in the horror show of All Out War, it's, it's geographically spaced, right? So like crime, it, it doesn't go everywhere unless there's a, there's a crisis. So, that was, so I wasn't living in danger, but at the same time, the country was, country was poor and the country was paralyzed did, at the time. Did, so th that, that proved to be a really good time to be there because I have, I have a profound connection and memory to... Ireland as a place that was hemorrhaging population and was stuck in, in a historical dynamic that it had been in for, for centuries and decades. And that changed very much before it changed again back in, in the 90s and, and um, until the, the crash in 2007. But Ireland's a very different country than it was in the 80s, and, and I was lucky to have been there when I was. While you were in Dublin, did you have a kind of Ernie O'Malley moment, not a, not a point of radicalization necessarily, but a, but a moment in which your understanding of the importance of politics in Ireland and politics globally, did that change while you were there and saw soldiers in the streets? It got, it got, it got refined um, because, you know, I'd, I, I was not a, uh, you know, I, I didn't come from an AOH family, an ancient order of Hibernians family. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't brought up on the sort of hyper-nationalist perspective Although, you know, on both sides of my parents' families, they would have been nationalists, but not, but not necessarily embracing violence. And I, you know, I've always had a respectful relationship to the complexity of Irish politics, which recognizes that I'm an Irish American and I'm not, I'm not, I'm a citizen, but I'm not involved in, in uh, and I wasn't involved at the time that I was there in in political organizing or political work. But I was around people and I was learning from people who had very strong opinions 
um, from from those like my supervisor Terence Brown, wh whose hatred of paramilitary violence and passionate defense of literary culture I could sympathize with and learn from, but who also saw me as a Foucauldian influence <laughs> theorist and a, and a bomb thrower of sorts where I had no, I, no idea that I, I would be perceived that way. But I also, I, I was lucky enough that, that I lived in the house with this uh, real great character, Peter Devlin, who's from Derry Bogside family and whose father was, uh, was an intellectual who's based in Europe. You know, the Devlins were Derry Catholics, and even though they were living in Dublin and they were advancing in the world, they were, their family were involved in the SDLP, and, in, and, and if they weren't Shinners, they were Sinn Féiners, they were, they were sympathetic to, to things. And, 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 you know, yeah, so I was lucky to be around a variety of different people with views and perspectives on the North. And I got to, as I say, traveled up to the north a bunch of times in the company of, of some, uh, some fun people who, who taught me the most about the conflict in Northern Ireland, which was, for the majority of everybody, just getting on with it and, and living life and having a good time, having fun were deeply, deeply important. Those were, that's the majority of most people's experiences. For those people who, who took the, the responsibility of being politically involved on, on one side or the other, I got to know to respect them as autonomous actors caught up in something that I had to understand was was more complicated than I was going to be able to think. I still had my own my own sympathies. I still did not like seeing an army of yeah. occupation on the streets. I did not like seeing you know certain kinds of uh, aggressive triumphalism. I also didn't like reading about botched bombings that kill children you know my but but at the same time I had I had a sympathy for the idea that um, that change didn't come about easily and you know yeah we've been I mean we've been talking a bit about the concept of nationalism um, and the ways in which I mean even as a kid you you could have been but not weren't necessarily inculcated with a certain sense a certain awareness of Irish nationalism and its importance I mean there are people today uh, this sort of strikes me as I'm looking out uh, at a similar view uh, that I had um, on election night. Um, uh, people people have called the rise of Trump here, the rise of Marine Le Pen in France, and, and even Theresa May in Britain, a form of nationalism. Uh, how would you, if you would, how would you differentiate that from the nationalism you've been talking about in Ireland? Uh, it's a good question. I I think it it's the connection comes from the perception of a loss of control and the loss of control that drives contemporary populist nationalism, white nationalism, I think is, is not necessarily a loss of control as it is a loss of dominance or a loss of hegemony or a loss of a particular kind of security. So the, the security of the welfare state in the U.S. for the white working class was was uh, implicit and its erosion is I think sort of terrifying for for many people but I I think the resurgence of of nationalism and of the idea of the nation state as the ultimate 
substrate of our identity is intellectually repugnant and is utterly dangerous and is regressive in the worst kind of way. So I, 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 I would discriminate strongly between a small nation or an oppressed nation's embrace of nationalism and a, um, a triumphalist version of nationalism that is defensive and is based in the production of social antagonism. That's what I see happening in the present. I don't see a, move, a nationalist movement that has the goal of lifting people from oppression. I see a nationalist movement that has the goal of dividing people through the promise of a certain kind of comfort that can come about through being free to oppress or being you know, free to, uh, to not be confronted with other people's oppression. And so I think these are entirely different. And I think, you know, the, the Ireland is, should be a lesson and Irish America should pay attention to the opinions of Irish people about nationalism and about triumphalism and about race because the, the nationalist and anti-collective uh, animus of Brexit and of the Trump uh, phenomenon are deeply, deeply unpopular in Ireland, and people understand how threatening that is to a peace process of long construction, of, of long temporal construction, that has at the back of it all a notion of, of social fragility. And I'm among the many people, I think, in our society right now who who worry about the spread of social antagonism and the idea that there is, we don't understand here the nature of social fragility. And I think people in Ireland do. And that's why, um, you know, we, we got to pay attention to what happens with Brexit and how it works out in terms of borders and, and the European project. And I happen to think that, that, you know, there are deep problems with the European project as it's worked out, particularly the monetary union, but, but the, the idea, uh, Jean Monnet's idea of the European Union is progressive, and I and I admire the the tolerance and mutuality that's sewn into it, and I, I think Irish people admire that too, and I I think they would disagree with the dangerous uh, dalliance with nationalist separation, and particularly with with the the idea that the nation is the residual form of identity that can claim all allegiance at moments of antagonism, at moments of, of um, violence, because these can be produced all too easily. So, uh, yeah, we're in, we're in complicated times where we've got to really think carefully about um, how to pull back from uh, ways of thinking that give comfort but they give comfort because they, they set us apart from other people, and that is not the American ideal. And it's also, you know, fair play to Andy Kenny for for uh, for telling I think the truth about Ireland and its relationship to America, which is which is about immigration and assimilation. And people may not want to hear it, or some, certain people may not want to hear it or understand it. But contemporary 
immigrants are assimilating better and faster than previous generations of immigrants have, and particularly European immigrants. So, so the, the assimilationist processes are robust in the present, and it's precisely not the case that, that we have a failure of integration in our, in rec amongst recent immigrants. We have a profound participation in the process of, of civil society, processes of civil society. This is, you know, there's a, a connection here to my sister, Mary, who's a professor of sociology at Harvard and who is the lead author on the National Academy of Sciences report that came out last year on the state of immigration, uh, which was tragically ignored and which represents the best contemporary thinking of the entire uh, leadership of the sociological profession about the state of immigration. We have no new net migration from Mexico, and yet we're we're talking about building a wall to keep out the people who are not coming. It's it's um, dispiriting that the clarity of intellectual contribution to political debate was muddied through xenophobia and and straight out racism. But that's my my view of it. Professor Waters, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Joey. I really enjoyed it. That was John Waters, professor of Irish studies at New York University. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The director of the Howenstein Center and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Kadarj Bar edits the podcast, and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. Our programs address many of the most pressing issues in American life. Our annual Progressive Conservative Conference challenges leading thinkers on the left and right to explore the possibility of common ground and to redefine their respective traditions. Our annual conference on the Midwest brings together academics and journalists to discuss the cultural and political significance of the region that's often called flyover country. And of course, the Howenstein Center is itself a center for presidential studies, and it's been quite a year for the study of the presidency. To learn more about our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joe Hogan CGI. Thanks for listening. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.